Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. Chris Dyer, a renowned expert in company culture and remote work, is celebrated for his leadership. As a former CEO, he led his companies to be recognized as best places to work and among the fastest growing by Inc. Magazine. Ranked as the top leadership speaker on culture by Inc., he's authored best-selling books like The Power of Company Culture and Remote Work. Acknowledged globally, Dyer holds numerous accolades, including top rankings in leadership, change management, and employee engagement. He's a sought-after keynote speaker known for his inspiring, candid, and humorous presentations that leave a lasting impact on audiences. Dyer's influential seven-pillar strategy has notably boosted productivity and profits for many organizations. So I, I can't tell you how excited I am to welcome Chris Dyer to the Servicing Leaders Podcast. Chris, welcome. Hey, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's awesome. Let's start off. Let's let's start off. Hey, let's where where was Chris born and bring us to today? Give us a an overview of you. Yeah, I mean, I was born in Orange County, California. Born and raised here, and which means that I am spoiled about weather, and an absolute baby when it comes to the cold or if it's too hot. But yeah, I'm I'm from uh, Southern California. Absolutely love it. And yeah, I mean, that's every part of part of my journey sort of been. Uh, this is the focal point. You know, it's raining today, and so we're we're all trying to figure out what to do in Southern California, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's like a blizzard, you know, in other parts of the other parts of the the country. So when we were talking earlier, uh, we had a quick, brief call. Take take us through your your journey as it relates to education, because I think it really informs, you know, when you went to school and you were studying criminal justice and all of those different types of things. So take us yeah. through. That. I mean, I always wanted to be a business person. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And I got to school and I went to business classes and I was like, this sucks. I do not like these classes. I do not a debit and a credit and an equilibrium point. And I just was like, this is not, I was around business my whole life. My grandfather, my uncle, all these people in my family were entrepreneurs. And they weren't talking about supply and demand at the at Thanksgiving. Do you know what I mean? Like we were, there was a different conversation. I felt like this is not what I want to do. This is not what I want to study. Uh, I probably should have stuck with it, to be honest. But I was like, I'm not doing this. This is, this is stupid. And so at my university, I took a criminal justice class. And I was like, I love it. Now, my dad's a cop. So I had that kind of background. And I didn't want to be a cop. But I wasn't sure. And I was like, this class is awesome. And I love like what we're talking about. And I got really enthusiastic. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I'm I'm the kind of student that if I like something, I get an A. And if I don't like something, I'll get a C minus and just just scoot by in that class. Like right. I just if I'm passionate, I'm all over. And if I'm not, I'm like, let's just get it done. And so I was like getting, you know, top of the scores in the class, which is not my normal, you know, thing. And so I was like, yeah, there's something here. Maybe I want to do this degree. And then I realized it was more of a sociology degree. All of our books were sociology books. Yeah. And it's, if anyone doesn't really understand what sociology is, it's basically like, why do people do what they do? It's the study of like, why do these things happen? Right. You know, why does everyone, when they walk out a door, go right? Or why does everyone go to a particular stall in the bathroom? Because, you know, why is it, what's the, the triggers? What are these crazy like things happening in our brain that we can see repeatedly over and over and over again? And I found that fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. And so that's what I got my degree in. I probably should have stuck with business, but it worked out. So I'm happy. You know, as we take the next step, you you said you took a job at a at a place in Hollywood. Take us through that. Yeah, you know, I finished school, and at the time, I was working at like a Mediterranean restaurant. I kind of worked up from being the waiter to the manager, and you know, that wasn't going to pay the bills forever. I loved it; it was fun. Working in a restaurant can be a kind of a fun experience. I think everyone should have. But then I got offered this. Someone's like, "Hey, this hotel that's going to open soon is looking for." someone to be their head of security and they're looking for someone young and hip not some old cop that was like kind of the the inside you know knowledge they didn't want some old cop 
as their head of security because they were wanting to be hip and cool. Well, I wouldn't ever call myself hip and cool, especially not back then. But I I had a criminal justice degree. I was young. I was the, probably the only applicant that followed those two criteria, and they hired me. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll drive two hours in traffic each way. You know, sure, that sounds awesome. But, you know, they paid me $35,000 a year, and I was like, I'm rich, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, I was a 20-something just out of school. That was a big deal, you know? And so I did it. It was a, I learned so much. It was insane. Movie stars, cocaine, and working 80, right. 90 hours a week. I mean, it was just insanity. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then, and then you came to, you know, your industry that you then ultimately became extremely successful. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So again, it's, it sort of feels like, like when you're in one position and you do a great job and you work hard that someone will notice and then like you get your next opportunity out of that. And so our vendor at the time was a background check company and they were like, I just in conversations with them figured out that they were literally around the corner from where I lived. So because I had that job, I was able to buy a house. And of course I had like, you know, 19 roommates so I could pay the mortgage, but you know, I bought a house and was doing it and kind of I found out they were around the corner and they were like, Hey, we have an opening, same amount of money, but it's, I'm saving four hours a day. Right. right? Dr Sitting in driving. The car. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. I'm saving all that gas money. I'm thinking I'm on vacation now with all that extra money. I mean, geez, I, you know, I could, I, I can, I can level up from top ramen, maybe get rid of one of these, you know, roommates. So it was a big deal. <laughs> so I got hired there and I learned everything about the business, including that I did not like the guy who owned the company. I did not like my boss at all, but I learned a lot and was able to take that and then go start one of my own one day. Yeah. I thought it was interesting and I'd love you to share this like aha moment that you had, you know, during, during nine 11, because I think it's really powerful. We, we have all all of us have these during our lives and you can look back and go like, wow, pivotal moment. So just share that with us, right. please. Yeah. So just a quick little background, like my whole life, again, I was an entrepreneur. I had the lemonade stands. I was the number one sales person at school for the, you know, whatever the wrapping paper or whatever it is we were selling as a fundraiser. I mean, I was at the top, like I want, you know, that I love that stuff and I was good at selling and good and all that. But then for some reason I kept taking these jobs out of college that were safe, that were dependable, that were, you know, fixed salary. And I learned, I learned a lot and I'm really glad I did them, but it really wasn't who I was. Right. And so whether I learned enough or matured enough or whatever, the, the world decided to wake me up on that day. So I had gone in very early that day with an, another colleague was there early, like at six o'clock in the morning. She always had the TV on when no one else was on. And she's like, Chris, Chris, get in here, get in here. And I go mm. into her office and she's like, you're not going to believe this. There's a plane just crashed into the, you know, in New York. And I'm like, what? You know, at that moment, you're not thinking anything other than, oh my gosh, a terrible plane crash. Right. And right. why was there a plane even near this guy? But okay. Like, and then I'm, we're watching the TV and the second one hits. Right. And that's when I knew this was, you know, we all knew this was a terrorist. This was all, this was all like some, you know, intentional act. And as those moments unfolded, it was like I had been under a spell, like some, some wizard had put me or witch had put me under a spell and said, you will be, you will not reach your dreams. You'll just continue to be mediocre. You'll just stay where it's safe. And that plane hit and like the spell was released. And I was like, oh, why am I doing this? This is not what I'm supposed to do. Life is too short. I mean, look what's happening right now. Those people got on a plane today thinking they were going to work, going home to their families. There was, they were not in any danger in their minds. And here they are no longer with us. And I've been choosing mediocrity, right? I've not been reaching for my goals or doing the things that I said I was going to do. And that was just like, so 9-11 hit. And then by November 1st, I had a, had a lease, had a building started at my own company. You, you know, you have a lot of background in sociology, you know, your experience, it sounds like when you had it with your dad, you know, running business was about relationships. It wasn't about debits and, and credits. What's your, you know, now many, many years later, I'd love you to share why, why do, why do humans do that? 
what why do why do we wait until you know something like tragic like a 9/11 to happen or hey dad's got cancer or like why why do why does that happen what what's your what's your feeling behind that unfortunately most people are perfectly happy living a mediocre life being mediocre being in the middle being okay and not t- doing what it takes to be great is a hell of a lot easier, right? It really is. And, you know, I think for everybody, what you want to do with your life is up to you. So I'm not saying that your life is not good if you don't want to you know, be a CEO one day or you don't right. want to own a company one day or you don't want to be a gold medal winner. That, that, that is irrelevant. Whatever success or happiness is to you, right? Whatever that goal is to you, that you are putting forth the effort and the actions to make whatever that is happen, right? So I'm not one of those people. It's like you have to achieve, you know, 10X or whatever, or your life was worthless. Absolutely not, right? I know a fair amount of people that are very happy that do not live in the high, you know, goal, high success thing. Again, that's okay. So but I think what happens is no matter what your goals are, it's super easy to let all these other distractions happen. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to have your nine shows on Netflix that you can't possibly live without. And you're going to spend all your time and energy doing these things that aren't really helping you get better. They're not really helping you achieve. They're not really helping take you to that next level. Right. And so why do people do it? Because it's hard to do the other thing right? It's hard. And we don't often know where to go. We don't often have great mentors, uh, you know, to, to help us. And I think so many people maybe feel helpless. They feel un, un, unguided in a way, right? Certainly in school and in life, no one's like, hey, let you think in school, like the entire point would be like, let's help you reach your dreams. It's not. It's like here, learn all this junk. So maybe one day when you decide on your dream, you can be a prepared person to go do it on your own. So, yeah. I think this leads perfectly into the next part of the conversation where I want to really guide it is, you know, you just said a lot of times people might want to, you know, rise up to another level. They might want to lead their life differently. They might want to, you know, create a strong team and a strong culture or unit at their work and, and, and at their home. But a lot of times don't know how to do it. It's too confusing. It's a, you know, it's this quadratic equation that's so complex. So, so take us through your, you know, you start your company and uh, take us through your, your journey as, as you were grappling with these same types of questions. Yeah, I mean, I started the company and it was like, well, let's start it and see if we can survive. And we did that. I remember the days when we were like, this is back in the day when like people used to fax us orders, right? So we used to like put a little tally mark on a piece of paper and we're like, if we could just get 35 orders a day, we'll be okay, we'll be okay, right? I remember like the day we got 35 tallies on the paper, we like celebrated, you know. And when I sold the company, we were getting 3,500, 4,000 orders a day. I mean, it was like, you know, radically different. Yeah. But at that moment, you think, wow, this is going to be it. And so I think we we just sort of like were, we were mediocre for a lot for a lot of years. We did the best we could, but we didn't do anything to innovate to really get, you know, to be the top of the top. And it wasn't until the recession hit in 08 and 09 that I realized we had been you know, sitting in the middle that we hadn't been doing anything to really be the best or to reach the top and to really grow the business in a way that would impact everyone's lives in a, in a great way. And that's when I had this sort of like epiphany of like, well, I'm going to change the culture. We're going to make this place great. Like now's the time. The world is crumbling around us. We just lost 40% of our clients who went out of business. And we can barely pay the bills. And, you know, it's another one of those moments, right? The, the plane yeah. didn't hit yeah. the building, but but yeah. the economy hit 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 the bill. The plane hit the economy, right? Sure. Uh, so, and it was like, well, this is the time to do it. This is the time to fix this. And I went, cool. So what are you supposed to do? 
in a lot of situations, you decide you, you want to do something, you can go pick up a book or an instruction manual or watch a YouTube video or get, get a teacher, an instructor, right? If I, if I said for me, life is playing the violin, I could go find some of the best teachers and practice and practice. And the, the path is fairly clear. When it came to company culture, the path was not clear. Hmm. What you're supposed to do was not clear. At least I couldn't find the answer. And I spent a good year reading every book I could, talking to every person I could, every you know successful person, and they didn't have an answer for me, right? And so ultimately, I had to figure out where to focus. There is so much noise, right? So mm. how do we filter the noise and lead high-performing teams? That's what I needed to figure out, right? What's noise and what's important? And when I figured out on what we really needed to focus on and helped everybody clear away that noise so that we could do our best work, our teams could do their best work, we took off, right? It was like we were off to the races and we just kept growing and growing and growing and having you know, a fantastic success. But it took a while to know where to focus. When you think about, you know, you're, you're in this cave and you're, you're reaching around and you're trying to do things, right? And hey, let's try this. Hey, it didn't work. <laughs> hey, let's try this. It didn't work. And then, and then you write this, you know, the first version of your book, you know, the, the power of company culture, I think it was 18. Is it, is that 2018, it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 2018. What was, what was the, the. The thought behind it, because, you know, you're talking about 2008, 2009, 2010, you're starting to work with this. What did it take that long to really go like, hey, how do we figure this out? Or, or what was the impetus for, for saying, hey, I need to write a book about this? Yeah, so I really went on a journey of, okay, we have figured out where to focus today and it's working really well. And so then I got like super curious, right? I got just like I talked about in college, like I got just crazy oh, focused, yeah. intense on this, right? To the way the point my employees are like, dude, like chill out, okay? Like we, we've got it, you know. Right. Every day I'm talking about five new things that I learned and this thing at this conference and this, from this person. And but to your point, it was a constant. Let's try this. Did it work? Right. And most of the stuff we tried didn't work. And yet we kept trying new things. So imagine if you went and tried, you know, not 10 things and nine of them were like, eh, or total failure to only find one thing that went, ah, that works really well for us. Would you do that? Would you keep that up for 10 years? I mean, it's, it, it was exhausting at right. times. There was, there was fatigue by my people at times, like another, are we going to try this? Okay. But Every time we added one cool thing that really worked, man, that just gave me all of the bandwidth to be like, okay, we'll try 10 more things. Okay, that one worked. You're right. You know, that is pretty cool, right? And then it was evolving those things and changing those things. So I think that was really uh, the impetus, right? So I kept just learning, learning, learning. We created all this stuff, learned all these great things that other companies did, some of which works for them and didn't work for us, but we it was very clear, like, okay, there's a, there's a thing there, right? It was important for us to understand. And so, and then but by total accident, a publisher came knocking on my door and was like, Hey, do you want to write a book? And I was like, sure, just make sure you don't ever speak to any of my English teachers because they will talk you out of it. But yeah, we can do that. So. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, so the book comes out, the, the power of company culture comes out in 2018. It just came out with second edition. I'd love you to talk about what what are the what are the principles that you found that from the first book to the second book, what are the key principles that are there? And then, and then you know focus on that first. But then how you know the second edition came out. We all learned a lot through through COVID, and and how has leadership and culture changed through that? So take us through that. Yeah. So I mean the the second version of the book, I was able to. In, in those 10 years, become a much better writer, first and foremost. You know, I did my absolute best the first time, but anyone's ever done anything creative, write something, you know, play an instrument, 
you go and practice for 10 more years, you're going to come back and be a hell of a lot better at it. So I felt like I could take that book and, and really bring to it what I wanted to bring to it the first time, but I just didn't have the tools and the capabilities yet. Right. I didn't, I wasn't in the business of writing. I was running a business, you know? So I really wanted to make the points clear and provide more examples and go deeper into those, you know, really key areas where I know there was more to talk about and where I learned more and we, we made adjustments on. As well as for 10 years, I heard people say, geez, I read this one part, but I, I didn't, I need more. Or that was great. I wish you had given more examples here. Or, you know, I was getting this like for 10 years, live feedback from people of this was great, but right. Here's where I needed more help. Here's where I needed you to tell me more. And so I was able to kind of deliver that, which was great. And of course, as you said, with COVID and the advent of additional flexible work, I think really the democratization of work for the average employee prior to COVID, it was screw you, you will be in this office and you will sit your butt on this chair and you will do what I say and, and you do the work I say. And, and like, that's it. That was like the subtext in a very toxic way for a lot of companies and for a lot of employees that they, they had no choice, right? You got to take your kid to the doctor. Most people got to take a whole day off, right? That's a big deal. When you only get nine or 10 days of, of PTO, get, your kid gets sick and you got to waste one of those on because they, your, your company won't be flexible with you. Now comes COVID and everyone learns and realizes you can work from home effectively. People can be trusted to go take their kid to the doctor for an hour and then make that time up later, right? Or geez, go, go take your kid for an hour. I don't care. Like, you know, if I'm paying you for that hour, whatever, I'm sure there'll be some other project or thing comes up where you have to jump in and help. Well, it all comes out in the wash, right? And so for so many companies, that mindset shifted to allow, and then that democratized work. So people are like, I don't want to work today in the office or Fridays, the freeway is absolute madness. I kind of just stay home and not sit in traffic for four hours, right? And get a ton of more work done and be a lot happier person. So there's a lot of that sort of how we deal with that and what has changed. And then where are we going? What's the future kind of look like as well? How, how much, how much change have you seen in the, in your, in your book um, with, with COVID having happened? Has there been a big change? Like when, when I, when I read the book, I don't think there's a huge change. You were already before that. You were already looking at the sort of the future of work saying, Hey, like we got to take care of our people, you know, but what, yeah. what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So the change was less about what I was saying. I, so the, the, the second edition is essentially, I'm giving you a lot more, right? I just expanded and really gave you right. more examples and more stories and right. Uh, more ammunition to, to, to talk about this at work. What changed, though, was everybody else because COVID was, 9-11 was a really big moment, but you could say that parts, many parts of the world were like, well, geez, that was bad, but it doesn't really affect my day, right? right. Yeah, that was terrible. The news ends. I mean, I don't want to point out, but there are places in the world that I'm sure 9-11 was just a blip to them, right? Yeah. For us as Americans and many other countries, it was a much bigger deal, but COVID is the first time for these generations to have a worldwide event that completely caused you to not be able to do what you wanted to do. You want to, you want to leave the country too bad. You want to go on, on vacation too bad. You want to leave your house too bad. Right. And that the last time that happened was probably world war two. Right. So it, it was a different than a war, but it was the same sort of like the entire globe was impacted by this event. And in it, it, we had to reflect and change. And we also had a common, common story. We have something we could all, we all went through together, which we know back from World War II when people came back from the weather was that very more, more connected feeling and brought people together, right? Because they had all been through it and lost people and you know, all this. So I think, that's what's changed. And that has allowed uh, the conversation about our lives to pierce through 
those walls at, at, in the boardroom, right? And now the conversation at work is not just about work. It's also about what's happening in our community and what's happening at home and in our lives. And so it's, a, it's allowed for a far more holistic view of our people and our employees, which is exactly what I was talking about before. People just really the A students were listening to me, but now at least I got the B and the C students' attention too, right? We feel the same exact way. There were some people before who were, hey, yes, culture is important. How do you measure culture? You know, well, I can't really measure it. Well, take a look at your bottom line. <laughs> you know, people are more productive. They're more engaged. You know, talk to us about, as it relates, because right on the front of the book, it says, how, do you, how can you build a culture that improves the, the productivity, the profits, and the performance? Mm-hmm. Help us get that link because culture, everyone always says, oh, it's so soft and don't understand it. And I'm used to measuring the, the, the productivity and the widgets. But how does, how does what I'm investing in, how, how does that link? Can you share with us what you know about that? Sure. And I mean, there are a gazillion studies showing companies that have higher ratings of culture, employee engagement, employee satisfaction. You look at those companies with those high scores. In, in your industry sector or any sector, they also have higher profits. They also are higher up or are at the top of that market, right? So it is no, it, it's no accident that, you know, these things happen. But what we know is that it's not that your company does awesome and you have an awesome product and then culture is good. And that's what a lot of leaders think, right? I got this I got a cool thing to sell and we're making gazillions of dollars. Everyone's going to love working here. Cause you know what? There's lots of examples of companies that were doing well and all that. And then they died because of their culture. They lost their people. They didn't survive. So it's really about, yeah, you got to have a good idea. I mean, that's table stakes, right? You got to be selling something people want and you got to, you know, that, that that's fine. But if you want to be the top, you got to put the energy into your people. So, Here's a, here's a great example, right? For many years, our, we're, we were in a very commoditized market and our, our profit levels were thinner than they probably should have been. And the moment I decided to be fully transparent, so one of the pillars in the book is transparency. When I decided to go fully transparent with my people and give them our P&L every month, give everyone a copy of the PNL ahead of time in a meeting. And then we had meeting about our goals and what we're doing, but people could ask questions and I would take them through the PNL, what we spent our money on this month and what we spent our money on this year and told them. And you know what they did? They went back and came up with a thousand great ideas on how we could save money. Yeah. It's awesome. So we got more profitable to me. That was a part of culture, right? I was being more transparent. I'm not hiding from them, not keeping it to myself and just me and the CFO, I'm telling everyone, this is how much we spend on this, right? And then they go back and be like, that's too much. We shouldn't be spending that much on that. And I'm like, well, let's fix it, right? And, and, and so we got very profitable, which ultimately helped us, you know, one day sell the company for, for a nice little bit because we were a great company and we were very profitable. Yeah, that's great. Why don't you think more leaders do what you just did as it relates to transparency? What do you think the fear is? A lot of times what they're afraid of is that if they do well, people will ask them for a raise. And if they're not doing well, that people will leave. And I will tell you, neither things ever happened to me in all the years that I shared our P&L. And we had good, good times and bad times. We had Profitable months and very unprofitable months. We had all over the board, right? And every nobody, I never like had a great month and then had like, you know, 15 meeting requests. Can I have a raise? Like that never happened, Hmm. right? Because everyone was really understood because again, transparency, what their goals were and what we expected from them and what their KPIs were for their team. And we worked as a team to all support each other and get those goals. And when they did that, that's how they earned more money or promotions or whatever it was, right? Was by doing the things they needed to do to help the company be great. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but that didn't mean you like freak out and go, oh my God, we've had three months of no profit. 
the company's going to die. I got to get out of here. No one ever did that. What is, you know, someone listening right now, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to navigate this, the, the employees that I'm trying to bring back to the office, but, you know, in, 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 and I want them more back in the office, but not really to, to, you know, monitor what they're doing, more to collaboration. How, how, how do leaders navigate that right now? Well, first, what's the story you're telling yourself, right, that's causing this to happen? Because I know a lot of leaders that are bringing people back because they want people to laugh at their jokes and they want to be able to nudge up to them and they want to, like, it's selfish, right? right. It's selfish. And or they've got a, a building they've got to justify or they, they do want to, want to be able to see people. They do want to be able to, to manage that way. And that means they haven't evolved. So here's what we have to think about. Does this job need to be done here in this office or collaborate with other people? There is lots of research out there about the kinds of jobs that do need. We, we obviously understand there are certain jobs, like if you're making a thing, right. right? A bunch of people have to get together and make a thing on an assembly line or whatever. Yeah, of course you got to have to be in the place, right? Of course. You're, you're a warehouse worker and you're moving stuff around when orders come. Yeah, of course you're going to have to be there, right? We get it. But for the rest of those jobs, do they require you to be in the office? And the answer for a lot of those jobs is no. Like if you're a customer service person, you could be at home, you don't have to be in the office, right? So if the job doesn't need to be done in, the, in, in any particular place, then we should allow as much flexibility as possible. Now, I know a lot of companies where they have figured out for them, their people are all sort of relatively close to the office. And so for them, they can do their team meetings and team collaboration and get some of the value about being together on a limited basis. Maybe they do once a week or twice a week, they come in, but they're all there at the same time, right? So that they can have that, that energy at the same time. So if you want to be hybrid, I think the worst thing you can do is be like, everyone's just doing their own thing hybrid, right? That, that's right. kind of really hard to manage. It's better off like, hey, we all come in the office on Mondays or we all come in on Wednesdays or whatever it is and do all the stuff that we need to do as, as peoples together. Or maybe we, it is a good time to do a brainstorming session on a whiteboard or whatever. But the other days, we don't really need to be together. It's totally effective to be, you know, out. Oh, great. Like, that's a great way to do it. However, I will say that as, a, as a, somebody who managed like up to 4,500 people fully remote for years, there was incredible power in allowing people the autonomy to get their work done, how and when and where they wanted. As long as they met our standards, like, hey, this is what we all agree to, what you're going to do. I don't really care when, where, or how, right? As long as you're getting it done to my, to the level of expectations that we have. And we could, we never had a problem hiring people. There was a huge, huge problem of, 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 of not enough talent right now in this country. And really a lot of places in the world. I never once in the most competitive employee markets, never had a problem hiring people, hiring great people. Why is that? because I could hire someone from anywhere that I wanted, right? Now, we, we decided we were going to only hire the United States because it was easier from the complexities of all the international law and all that. Anywhere in the country, I can hire somebody that I don't need them in my office. And once a year, we'll fly them in for a holiday party, but like, I don't need them in the office, right? So I need a great CMO, and I can't find one in Orange County or LA, but I can find one in Topeka, Kansas has the same education, is just as bright and just as cool of a person. Fantastic. My, my pool has just expanded, right? And there's a whole lot of people that don't want to live in Orange County. They don't want to live with the high cost of living here in California. They'd rather be wherever they are, near their families or whatever. I also could hire people who were not favorable to most employers. I could hire physically disabled people because I don't have to worry about accommodations because they already have their own accommodations in their homes. I would hire people that like spouses of, of military was a big one. We would hire a lot of spouses because people wouldn't hire them because they knew as soon as their spouse got reassigned or moved to another base or another oh, thing, yeah. they, they didn't want to hire them because they were afraid they could lose them at any moment. I, on the other hand, was like, come to work for us. Wow. We don't care if you move. I didn't know that, man. The military spouses. That was like a gold mine of a talent pool. 
not only that, but value the values they have and they exhibit. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They were always great people came with great value. I mean, I, you know, it was rare that we ever had a problem with anybody who ever fit that category. I mean, they were on there and then we would tell them because they would be nervous about it. Like, listen, as soon as you find out you're going to get moved or reassigned, just let us know. We, and we would tell them we're going to book you time to move and you don't have to work. It's not coming out of your PTO. Wow. It's not coming out of your thing. We will pay. If you're going to take you a week to get to the next place, we'll pay you for that week. You get to the new place and you start work again. Right. And they were just like, you would do that. You, you would help me that way. I mean, they, and they would send me their friends. Right? Oh they my would, goodness. Yeah. I'd, I'd send you my friends too. I mean, fantastic. We never had a problem, but how much did that cost me to pay someone an extra week? Right. As compared to hiring recruiters and doing ads and like all that money you spend trying to get somebody in the door, I had them vetting them for me, finding out who they were. And I had people all around the country working on their laptops. I gave them a laptop. I gave them whatever laptop they wanted. I gave them a budget and said, you go pick the laptop you like. Go on Amazon or Costco, whatever. And boom, we get it for them. Right. Even there, we were giving them autonomy to choose their equipment, to choose their what was going to work best for their lives. Right. And that's, I, I think that's how we need to think about remote work is how do we, how can it work for the company while it's also working for the employees? Let's talk about communication. So tell us about the importance of communication and leadership and what are your top things that, that you do or you recommend that leaders do? Well, if you're a leader, the first thing you got to do is shut up. <laughs> you got to stop talking so much and listen to what your people are saying and listen to what your clients are saying and listen to what your vendors are saying, right? And so how do you do that? Well, you got to come in and ask good questions. You got to prep your people to understand what it is we're really going to talk about or what it is you need from them, right? You could do that in advance. But then once you get there, you got to shut up, really. I mean, you got to let them talk and be the last thing, last person to talk, right? Uh, if you feel like you need to help guide the conversation, they're getting off, you know, kind of out of bounds or whatever, that's fine. But if you show up and you're like, hey, everyone, we need to figure out how to do this thing. Now, here's the three ideas I have as your leader. Guess right. what? They're going with that. And I learned the hard way that, you know, you give people transparent, you give them all the information. A lot of times they show up with a lot better ideas than what you had, right? At the very least, even if you already know what the right idea is, you've given them the opportunity to go through the exercise and talk it through, and they feel like they were heard. So that's number two. Do your people feel heard, okay? And we do that in a lot of different ways. We make sure that we provide them opportunities to tell the, tell us what they want to tell us that we provide them the opportunity to, to, to give their thoughts and ideas and that we repeat back to them what we heard and that we ask them good questions and we get curious about why they wanted to go that direction. Even if we know it's complete crap and they're, they're, they're junior and they're, they don't get it yet, but like we still need to do that so that we can help them grow and help them level up by letting them see how they could think differently next time. Right. Cause we could easily come in and just tell everyone the answer. Right. We, we, most of us have been around a long time. We've been leaders a long time. We're pretty good. We probably have the answer most of the time. And it's a lot easier just to show up and say, Hey everyone, this is what we're doing. Bye. But I, you miss out on incredible bits of innovation. You miss out on leveling up your people. If we don't give them those opportunities to have to be heard. Right. And that's a big factor for people in wanting to stick around at their companies is feeling heard. You don't, doesn't mean you have to do what they want. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that their ideas always went out. But they have to have those moments where they feel like someone actually heard them. And so, you know, I do. we do this uh, cool exercise. I teach this to all my clients. It's called bonding. And you go around the room and you have ask everyone, how are you showing up? It's a very specific phrase. Not how are you, but how are you showing up? And I would find that that was like their human, like the full person answer, like not just work, but at home and everything else that's going on in their lives. Like, how am I showing up right now? I'm doing great. We just landed this big deal. The 
the world is my oyster or just heard my grandma's in the hospital. I'm kind of freaking out. Right. Or we got a new puppy. I haven't slept in two days. You know, like these things that happened in life. And that was an opportunity as a leader to be like, oh, I, I, I didn't realize that your grandma was in the hospital. How are you? How are you handling that? Do you need help? Right. Can we take some of your workload off of you? Are you struggling? Do you need to take the day off? Like, how do I as a leader immediately hear that there's something going on with you and provide you support and help? Right. But the second question we would ask at the end of the meeting was, how are you leaving? And this was a great way for me to find out that I, as the leader, had a completely different perspective on the meeting we just had. I can't tell you how many times I was like, this was a fantastic meeting. We all thought we had a great, this was like the best solution. I mean, we nailed it. I am the best leader of all time. And I'll be like, cool. I know just, we always got to do this, but how are you guys leaving the meeting? And they were like, uh, yeah, I don't really know. I'm kind of leaving worried. This isn't going to be good. I don't think the client's going to like this. I'm not really, I'm like, oh, okay. Guess we didn't have the meeting I thought we had, right? Like I was, cause you know what? It was probably my idea, which is why I thought it was such a great meeting. And that was a way to make sure they felt heard. And I was like, okay, I'm hearing we're not ready. I'm hearing this idea isn't there yet. I'm hearing you feel confused or don't know how to go execute this now. Okay, let's come back and meet on this again, right? Another time. Like, I'm going to go back and think about it. Let's come back and meet so we can address it and you can feel right. So that's another way for them to feel heard. Now, if anyone's interested in trying this, there's a couple rules. First, when you go around and ask these questions, you are always, if you're the most senior person in the room, you go last. You do not go first. It is always our habit to be like, I'm the leader. I'll set the example. I'll go first. Problem is, if you have a great day or a bad day, your people are going to feel uh, kind of awkward going opposite of your energy. Right? Uh, yeah. Right? So if you show up and be like, well, we're having a great month. This is the best February we've ever had. I'm so happy. Hey, how are you guys showing up? And they're like, I guess I'm not going to tell you about my dead grandma. Okay, yeah, we're happy, right? And so that that's really, really important. And then number two is, I, not everyone agrees with me on this, but I have found this to always be true. If your people are struggling, you hear that some of them are struggling. You've got to stop and address that. And nobody cares how you are as a leader. They do not have the bandwidth. They do not have the, the emotional capacity to take on your crap if they're struggling. So you got to just shut up and go get your, if you need help as a leader, go get it from somewhere else, a mentor, another CEO group, like somewhere else you got to go to get that support and attention you need. Your people can't give it to you if they're not um, there emotionally. Now, you go out of the room and they're all great, there's been those times and you're not, then that's okay to be vulnerable. I think it's okay to share them, right? Because they're ready to hear that. They're ready to help you. But rarely is that the case, right? You usually got to go uphill to get support. You don't really go downhill and get support. I'm going to use that in our next meeting. <laughs> how are you showing up and how are you leaving? I like that. Yeah. And, you know, what we really look to try to provide, and that's why it's so powerful that you're on, is just what are simple things you can do that, that open up communications channels, it's just really, really uh, important. One of the things that, because I saw David Marquet was in your book, and uh, yeah. he, he, he wrote the foreword for my book, and he talks about his, his story of training for one submarine and one type of submarine, and then he went to another submarine, <laughs> he said, he said, I had two thirds <laughs> and they were like, oh, I had two thirds and there was no, I had two thirds, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just this repeat back. And that's the culture that he went into to, to really have people start, start speaking up. L let's, let's talk about that a little bit more, you know, cause a lot of leaders have this thought that the way I was led was that when I went to my leader, they had all the answers. And so when I first went into you know, for me, the submarine force, when I first went in, it was like, Hey, I have to have every answer. And there's finally, they're like, Hey, there's 4 million pieces of equipment that are bandaged together to, to have a nuclear submarine. Operation. You're not expected to know everything. So, so talk to us about 
the the adapting to change and you know how how we have a much bigger much faster speed of business you know that it, it's not anymore that there's one person you know that's going to have all the answers for this but talk to us about how to make that transformation from from the person who feels like that to to what is needed today for successful leadership yeah i think a successful leader today and i'm so glad that you brought up david marquez he's one of my favorites He's been on my podcast, I don't know, three, four times or something. And if he puts anything out, I'm always reading it six times. And, and that's sort of the intent-based leadership really, I think is what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a leader, you want to be the person who wants to find the right answer, not have the answer. And, and I think that you have to have a certain level of, of skills and certain level of a work ethic, and you've, you've gotten yourself to a certain point as a leader or as an expert in a particular area, right? By through your experience, your education, and all of that. But a great example is if a lot of people don't know this, but uh, most pilots don't know most of the things, most of the buttons and all the pieces and the things, right? My, my nephew's a pilot. I was up with him, and I was like, What does that do? What does that do? And he goes, I don't know. And you're right? probably scared to death. You're like, what? But you know, the the explanation is is that a good pilot knows how to deal with situations, and they have a giant book in all these planes that tells them what all this stuff does. And so his job is to know enough, and then to be able to handle the situation in a calm manner and figure out what the right answer is. It's not his job to memorize every single tiny little thing right? That may never even come up. It's not his job to be an expert on every single plane he flies. It's his job to be able to handle the things that happen and be able to figure things out as they come along, right? And that's a big mind shift, right? About being good under pressure and being good at how to find the answer. And I think that's what leaders need to be more in tune to is when we have a problem, okay, how do we figure out what's the best thing to do and how do I use my team and my resources in a way to do that? Make sure that I'm listening to them, that we don't miss something as opposed to, well, this happened one time in 1982 and this is what we did. So go do that. Right. Or, or a lot of leaders are just afraid to say, I don't know. Ah, uh, yes. Right. Yes. And to show that. so powerful yeah. to say that. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say so transformative. They they look at you and they're like, Oh, you're a human. You don't know? Yeah. yeah. So powerful. Yeah, I love the example of the of the plane and you know, obviously everyone miracle on the Hudson, you know, yeah. Sully Sully went through the checklist first. And going through the checklist allowed him to say, Hey, look at it, I got it now. I went through the checklist, it's not working. Now I can get rid of all of those ideas in my head. And I, mm -hmm. I can now be a lot more creative. So I, I think that's uh, I think that's great advice. You know, I have a, I have a, I have a story that might uh, be of interest. So uh, there's a band called Mumford and Sons. Most people would probably know them. They're a pretty popular band. And I learned something about their process that I found really interesting. They go and they do 10 bars in 10 hours to write 10 songs. Okay. And from scratch? From scratch. Okay. They do this, they do, well, at least they did this one time before like their biggest album of all, you know, of all their, they have a lot of albums that went really, did really well. But they went and did like 10 pubs in 10 hours and wrote 10 songs. And the reason for that, none of those songs ended up on the album. But the reason they did that was to clear out the cobwebs of all those little ideas and all those little riffs and all those little things that they had kind of gotten stuck and they got them out and they got them on paper and they put them into a place and they became a part of a song. And then they showed up to write their album and it was all completely fresh stuff, right? They could start from a place of, of real creativity, right? And I think sometimes we don't let our people work through this stuff in a creative way to get some of that stuff out of their, their brain so that then they can get to the next level of being really strategic, right? And we've got to help them do that. Love that. Love that. Yeah. The Talk to us about the power of, you know, some people call it failure. Some people call it a learning lesson. Talk to us about the power of, of that as, as a leader. 
Yeah, you know, when your people feel like, A, they can make mistakes and it's okay. Remember, there's mistakes and there's errors. I'm not talking about errors where somebody's being careless or multitasking or whatever. I'm talking about they're trying to do something they thought was better or they tried something new. Maybe they didn't know the answer, but they were stuck on the call with the client and they tried their best to answer the question. It wasn't quite right. It's okay. We can learn. We can fix it, right? So they need to know that it's okay. We don't want to be shoving those things under a desk to be hopefully locked away forever. No one ever knows you made that mistake. Like That's not the kind of culture we want to have. And there are in some, I talk about the book under the pillar for measurement, like you need to pick a system. You want to be a lean company. You want to be a scrum and agile company. You want to be a Six Sigma. I don't care. Pick one that you like because they all sort of have this part of their structure where you, I'll use the scrum and agile terminology. You have a retrospective right? Which is, we did the thing. Now we come together and go, what worked? Where could we have done better? Like, where do we make mistakes? Where do we, you know, hey, if we could do this exact same thing next time, what should we have done differently? Right? And it's okay. We're not there to criticize people. We're not there to yell at them. We're not going to write them up or punish them. We're going to talk about how could we have done that better? And if everyone is working to get better for next time, we're going to be fantastic pretty soon. Right? But if people think that you're going to yell and scream at them and lose your lose your your head because they didn't do it the right way the first time, I mean, come on. We we all literally, I don't know about you, but I walk around making mistakes all day long, you know, and I try to learn from them and get better from them. And, you know, I don't walk around getting mad at myself I'm like, oh, well, I tried. That didn't work. I mean, I just launched a new website and I'm about to like make like 10 changes to it. I thought I had it just right. And I'm like, oh, I think this isn't right. I'm going to go fix this. This is going to be different. And, and, and I'm not mad about it. I, you know, it's going to evolve. So I think it's super, super important we create an environment for our people to they can be open and honest. And there's, there's two quick things. If you want to do that, you as the leader have to set the example. If you're not willing to show up and tell everyone how you screwed up, they're never going to do it. And number two, sometimes you got to make a really big deal about it in a good way. We used to have a Slack room that was called Oops, My Bad. And we would, leaders would go in and admit their mistakes and we would eventually get people to start admitting their mistakes because the leaders were, they were setting the example. Mm -hmm. And every month at the company meeting, I would pick out the one I thought was the most interesting or the coolest or whatever, or the biggest. And I would give them the boo-boo of the month award. Awesome. Right? Here's a $25 gift card to Starbucks. Thank you for screwing up and admitting it. Here, we all can learn from your mistake and get better. Right? Love it. Just love it. Love it. Love it. What's your thoughts on AI and as it relates to culture and leadership? Well, I think for right now, it's going to be, for some people, an absolute gift and a help, right? And for other people, it can be a a real distraction and and, and really difficult. It could even be could really screw up the, the job market for certain people, right? I mean, as these things start taking, I mean, I saw a thing on the news the other day about a, an entire restaurant. It's like completely AI thing. And all these robots are making the burgers and the fries. And like, if they get that thing right, I mean, that's kind of going to be an interesting, you know, change in the job market. Um, I guess, you know, not to get too nerdy, but you, if you've ever watched Star Trek, there is a part of that entire storyline of that whole series, no matter which version or which thing you want to watch, is that they've gotten to the point where we don't have to do these sort of mundane things that the computers can do for us so that we can spend more of our time doing deeper thinking and really focusing that technology and that that, that AI and that computers in a way to make the, the world a better place where there isn't hunger and there isn't war, and there isn't people, you know, doing these stupid things. Can humanity evolve in that way? And I guess the science fiction geek in me is like, I really hope so, right? I really hope this is the first step towards us having a this basis, this, this underlying thing that can do the crap for us so that we can live more fulfilling and, and enjoyable lives where we spend more time with our families and our hobbies and thinking creatively about how the world can be a better place instead of like, I don't know, what stupid other thing we've been worrying about for, you know, today. 
So that that's sort of my take. There's a lot of nuance, I think, in between there, but that's my 30,000 foot level thought. All right. So I have a couple other questions for you. Are the glasses real? <laughs> they are real. They, they are, are real. They're need, here. Yeah, you need them. Yes. Uh, so these are currently my reader versions. Uh, yeah, I have some other versions that I can wear that are blanks and I have other ones that have, I have lots of different versions based on what I'm doing. So these are just for reading and works out perfectly for the podcast. Yeah, it's absolutely awesome. We'll put a picture up of you and, and, and on that. So, so Chris, you know, one of the things is you talk about how you can become a better leader yourself, but for us to have success, it's about the collective genius of the team and, and others stepping into leadership too. How do you approach that where someone says, well, hey, you know, I, I'm not the full-time leader. You know, how, how do you approach that? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges that we have is to find great leaders and to help develop leaders because a lot of people don't want to be leaders. They're afraid of it. They look at what other leaders go through and what they have to deal with and responsibility. And they say, you know what? That's not for me. Or they feel like, I don't know how to be a good leader. I don't know what that looks like. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to keep being a top performer. I'm going to keep doing my job. I'm going to keep my head down, but I don't want to be a leader. And there have been so many times when I would recognize somebody, I'm like, they would be a great leader. And I would go to talk to them and they'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I would like to stay right here in my quiet little cubicle and you can leave me alone now. I do not want to be a leader. And I would say, okay, how about we compromise here? Because I think you could be a great leader. And they'd be like, Chris, you're insane. No. And but how about you just give it a try? Like, I'm not asking you to be a manager. I'm not asking you to change your job. But why don't you see how it feels to go run this project. I have a project coming up. Why don't you be the team lead just for this one project and just see how it goes, see how it feels. And then we can talk about it. And if you hate it, cool. nope, whatever. And I call this a, basically convince them to be a part-time leader. Love that. Right? And you're just, it's just dipping your toe in the water. It's, hey, I don't know how to swim. That's okay, but why don't we just get your feet in the water and you get used to that part before we worry about trying to swim, right? And, and so what would happen is nine times out of 10, though, that person would come back to me and go, oh, I kind of like that. <laughs> I love it. You know, the project went really well. It was actually, I, you know, we, we, it was great. I really enjoyed working with everyone and being able to kind of figure, yeah, it was kind of fun. And, you know, one time out of 10, the person would be like, I tried it. Here's my middle finger. I am never doing that again. And okay, cool. We figured that out. This is not for you. Okay. I still think you'd be a great leader, but if you don't want to do it, it's not for you, right? I'm not going to make you do it. So it, that, it's really, I think a lot of times when I talk to senior leaders, they'll say, we, have a, we don't know how to get, we're trying to find more people that could be leaders and we're trying to level them up and we're trying to you know, bring them internally instead of hiring externally and all of this. And they're essentially asking people to go from zero to a hundred, right? With no training and no like sink or swim. Like, well, that's how I did it. They just threw me in there with the wolves and I just figured it out. Most people don't want to do it that way, right? So see if you can put them in charge of a team. Again, bring up Scrum and Agile. They rotate who the Scrum Master is. You take turns being the leader. And that's another. That's why that system works so nicely because you see people get a little taste of it, right? And, oh, I, I could run the meetings for a week and then and then step back out, right? And decide if you want to do it more or not. I love the, just the, the perspective on it. One of the things that we have is we have, you know, we recommend daily meetings and we rotate the leader who doesn't matter who it is. And yeah. if it's a secondary leader, a secondary meeting, like that cascades down, if the leader's not, if the main leader's not at the top level, the secondary leader goes up. And if mm -hmm. it's their, their day to run it, they run it and they can run it. And it's just, it's so powerful. I mean, we've seen like Gen Z and and millennial just love, love running the meeting. So I love your thought and, and your approach on calling it a part-time leader. And um, I think it's a very, very creative way to, to have people, like you said, put their toe in the water. And then next thing you know, it's like when they first get off the diving board, then they're running towards the, the diving board again, right? 
and and ready to jump in the water. So so I love that thought. And probably one really key piece of information that I'm sure you've already figured out, but just for anybody listening, if you're going to do that, and you as a senior person are in that meeting, if you allow them to take the the role of the leader, you have to take the role as a not leader, right? And you have to be very clear to be quiet and you have to just participate the same way you would if you were the entry-level person, right? Because otherwise you end up taking their power away and you end up, you know, negating it for them and they don't feel like they had this great experience that they had, right? If they're running the meeting, good, bad, or otherwise, they're running the meeting. And you can coach them later on on how they could be better or whatever. But I've seen so many times people go, oh, well, let this person run the meeting and the leader doesn't shut up, right? And that it doesn't work. So you got to really make sure that you leave air in the room for that leader to breathe. Right. And to, and to do that job. And then they'll feel better about it. What's one thing that a person could do that's listening right now that they could put into place to help surface the leader inside of themselves? Mm. Yeah, I think I think you have to decide. What 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 is what does good look like? What does success look like for you? Right. And so what does that look like? And then. What is it? What's the story that you're telling yourself? So if you're not being the leader that you want to be, if you haven't gotten there yet, or maybe you're afraid to even start, you're afraid to try, you're afraid to even be a leader. Like what? What's the story that you're telling yourself? Okay, and you got to go back and figure out why. Because whatever it is, whatever has been happening, you're choosing it. It is your choice not to be a leader, to not be a good leader, to not. Unfortunately, like it's your choice. And I know people go, well, it's not my choice. I'm I'm quiet. I'm this, I'm that. I didn't choose that. It's just how it was brought up or you know who I am. Trust me. Just figure out what good is. What is where do you want to go and start taking the small steps that you need to do to make it happen. To kind of steal from James Clear, your great book, Atomic Habits, right? He's got this uh, idea of the aggregation of marginal gains, which said in a much simpler way is, how do you get 1% better, right? Just get a little bit better today. You don't have to go from being this person to this, like, you know, 50 steps up the ladder. It's how do I take one more step up the ladder? And that's it. That's all you got to worry about, right? Just get a little bit better today. And that focus it's really monumental. It, it sort of like lets you breathe, right? I'm not trying to go from me to whoever you think is a fantastic leader, right? Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or I don't know, Adam Grant or whoever. I'm not trying to go from zero to that. I'm trying to be a little bit better than I was yesterday, right? And what books can I read and who can I talk to? What mentors can I get? And what feedback can I get from my team or my leaders? Like, how do I just keep getting a little bit better? And that's the journey. That's what great leaders do. They're, that they're not, they're not running some secret Illuminati blueprint of how to be a, a leader, right? It's just they're trying to get a little bit better every day, and they learn from their mistakes, and they just keep trying. And that's what it is to be a leader, along with opening your mouth and having a voice at the right time, taking care of your people, right? You got to be there. They're, they're knight in shining armor at times, right? I mean, there's that part too. But I, I think that that's just where you got to start, right? Knowing where you're going and start walking. So where can uh, people learn more about you, your company? You're the number one keynote speaker uh, in, this, in this area. Where can they learn more? So they can go to chrisdyer.com. That's D-Y-E-R. You're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn or connect. And I put stuff up there all the time. I'm also on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, wherever you hang out on the social platform, my content is probably there ready for you. So if you'd like to follow along and be a part of the conversation, wherever you hang out, find me and I'd be happy to connect and uh, keep the conversation going. Chris, for, for me, it's been Absolutely fantastic. Uh, I know the audience will have loved this. And, you know, the, the one word that I really take out of this is, is transformation. You know, when I think back to what you were talking about, hey, I started in 
college and, you know, went to business classes. And then I didn't like that because that wasn't what I thought it was. And the entire transformation through and, and your willingness to take action, I think are two things that, that I really take from this that I think are, are really powerful parts of leadership. And, and I hope the audience, you know, takes a look at that too. It, you know, your next decision is not your final decision. So you can, you can, right. you know, go, go backwards and, and, and take another path. So thank you so much for being on the Servicing Leaders podcast. Oh, we appreciate it. Well, and I absolutely love the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for shining a light on all this. Uh, it's fantastic. So thank you, Mark. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.